Welcome to a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. Because it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. A breath of fresh air. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day. and welcome to this week's show. I hope you've been enjoying yourself since we last caught up. I certainly have. I've been getting into some great movies and TV series. Have you had a chance to see Daisy Jones and the Six? If not, do yourself a favour and check it out. It's loosely based on the story of Fleetwood Mac in the 70s and it's fabulous to revisit that era on the screen. I guess I'd say that though, wouldn't I? Because each week I make it my business to take you back sonically to the 60s, 70s or 80s to revisit some of our very favourite musicians. Now, this week is no exception, and it's because of a request from a listener in Yamba in New South Wales here in Australia that we're about to hear from drummer Tony Newman. I get that his name mightn't ring any bells for you, but James has asked me if we could have a chat to one of the guys who played with English band T-Rex. started talking, I discovered a whole lot more about him than simply his collaboration with the late Mark Bolan. Thank you for asking me. I'm surprised anybody's really interested in it, because a lot of it seems like ancient history. Well, that's what we specialise in, A Breath of Fresh Air. (laughs) Ancient history that that all the oldies like you and me remember very fondly and want to relive. Okay. Terrific to have the opportunity to chat with you. So what's a good Englishman doing living in Las Vegas? Oh, that's a long story. I'll have to go back to when I was with T-Rex, which was 77, 78, something like that. And I got a call that Mark Bolan had been killed in a car crash. It was a real shame because we were doing very well. He'd got the new band together, uh, the new T-Rex. We were voted best new band, believe it or not, by the listeners and uh, and watchers. And uh, we were doing concerts. And it was like a resurgence of what it used to be years ago. You know what I mean? It was was exciting. Everywhere was sold out. So to get this call that that my dear friend Mark, uh, we became great friends. Uh, We really... We touched each other's hearts from the beginning, and I got this call that he died, and uh, that was it. And uh, I was having a really bad time in London with alcohol and drugs, and I'm getting a divorce from my wife, and I'm living with this gal in London. It was just an awful damn time. It was a real bottom to me. So my buddy, Herbie Flowers, who'd uh, introduced me to Mark, uh, suggested I go to Nashville. Well, you know, I never ever been to Nashville. I think we oh we did stop there with Bowie once, and the Wings came. Paul McCartney came out a party, but apart from that, I don't know anything about it. But I thought, well, I need a break from it all, from me, you know, mainly. <laughs> so I took this trip to Nashville, and I had I got booked straight away to play sessions. And I'd never played country and western music. I didn't have a clue. And so we got on this session, and I'm 
I'm listening to music and I didn't know what to do. I mean, it was too simple for me. And uh, all of a sudden the guitarist started to bang his foot in time and I sort of followed on and went on from there, you know, and uh, had a pretty successful career in, in Vegas, ending up with the last uh, account I had was with the Everly Brothers and uh, I worked out of Nashville for that. I got divorced and I got married again and uh, got sober, which was a miracle and had no money. I remember that. It was just about scraping through. And my wife at the time had a house in Vegas. So I thought, well, I need to get out of here. I want to go out west. So we, that's how we came out in Las Vegas and uh, started again and doing great, living in a nice home now. And uh, we're both retired. And uh, I mean, I listen to music all the time and I'm talking to people all the time about music. And, you know, because when I first started, I lived in a really weird part of London. It was about 30 minutes on the train to the West End. And I was about, oh, I don't know, 13 or something. And I got myself got a paper round and I, I made enough money on it to buy a kit of drums. So I went into this store in London and I said to the guy, I want that kit. He said, all right, well, it's going to cost X amount. I think it was like 13 pounds for everything, which is like 20 bucks. So it was a fortune for me, you know. And uh, so he, I said, well, I can't afford this. And so he said, well, you know, we put it on higher purchase. You can pay for it over time. So I got, I got this drum kit. Well, the guy in the store, we got the drums together. He offered me a gig straight away. So we need a drummer for this big band. So by the fact that I bought a drum kit, I got a gig, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, But the truth of the matter was uh, I did these gigs in and around London and I didn't really know how to play drums. You know, I was, I'd gone to the jazz clubs and I'd seen like Phil Seaman play, who did your baker Work with Phil. Phil was a heroin addict, and I loved him. He had a, he had a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. And he talked to me, you know. He was great to me, you know. So Ginger was his student, and Ginger at the time was a uh, registered drug addict. But the guys like Graham Bond and, and the guys in the bands he was working with got him straightened out somewhat. Well, I was standing on the corner waiting. was a British jazz rhythm and blues group of the early 60s in which Jack Bruce was bassist and Ginger Baker was drummer. I'm talking to Phil Seaman and working in a factory as an engineer and flipping burgers at night, you know, because I had to make money. You know, I used to like to drink, party, and rock and roll all the time and I never really <laughs> money. You know, so I got this audition to work in a band which was... Uh, ultimately became Sounds Incorporated. When I was with Sounds, we um, we were doing these gigs at the weekend in Leytonstone, and a talent scout came one night. His name was Henry, Henry Henwood, and he was, a, he was an ex-boxer, a very, mm -hmm. very gaunt face, and he worked for Don Arden. So he said, look, boys, he said, uh, would you like a gig with Gene Vincent? So we're thinking, man, this is the big time. Bebop Alula and American and 
this is what I want to do. You know, I got the fever about rock and roll when I saw this poster on a bombed out building uh, in London and they had a hit parade on it. I'd never seen a hit parade before, top 10, you know. And number one was Lucille, Little Richard. So I went to a fun fair and got on one of these rides, fast rides, and that was it. They played uh, Lucille and it put shivers <laughs> up my spine. You were it intoxicated. Was, oh, it was the injection I needed. To hell with it all, I'm going to be a rock and roll drunk. My mates took me down to the rehearsal room and uh, there was about five other drummers there and I just got up and played and I, I never dreamt I'd ever get it and they picked me. And, you know, I'd never done an audition. I, I didn't know much. I, I, I played completely by feel of what I heard. Uh, the only technique I had was speed and triplets and fast stuff and they at that time you know the drummers were putting an edge on it uh you know you can hear if you listen to stevie wonder fingertips when he was like 16 you know and the drummer there just gives him a big kick up the arse sort of massive fill and i thought that's it that's the way i like really on the edge all the time on the edge Important then than it is today? Well, you know, I love drums and drumming, but I I can't play anymore. You know, I'm 79. My three sons that play, one's professional in uh, London, actually, yeah, Richard I know. Tony's son is Richard Newman, who performs regularly with UK artists Sam Brown and Deborah Bonham, amongst others. Tony says he's not sure whether the drummer played a bigger part in bands in the 60s than they play today. I don't know. There's some great bands. There's, you know, I see the drums are featured a lot with the rap artists, and uh, there's some fantastic gospel drummers. I mean, they're just out of this world. Yeah, well... And we all really wanted it badly. We all wanted to play, you know, and uh, I must have wanted it more than anyone else because I was successful at it. Right. You know, it really was. I, uh, all those years, you know, I worked with sounds that really Tony, was. Tony, uh, point me to one track from sounds that really represents that. Well, it's difficult to pick a singular track because we didn't have any original material. We were copying what uh, the American acts were doing, and we were doing it our way. So with Sounds, there's a track called On the Brink, and that is sort of a good rock and roll track. It's later, one of the guys from Manfred Van wrote it, and it's like, it's, it's a pretty, pretty good track.
that was your first professional band. What was that like for you? Well, that was outrageous, you know, because we worked with Vincent, G. Vincent. We drove all the way up north of England, and some lady that knew us gave us a cake in case we got hungry. You know, it's like a six-hour drive, seven-hour drive. So, so we get to the gig, and uh, here we are, and we play a set, and then the guy introduces Gene, and like this maniac comes on dressed in black, you know, black leather. You know, his face all stretched up and he's looking at the stars, you know. And we just maxed out. You just did. We played rock and roll. I mean, just the guys are all working on moves in the band. It was like a real rock and roll band. I mean, we got into it, moving the saxes everywhere, guys laying on their back. And we get off and the place is going crazy. I'm asked for my autograph and sweating, you know. I mean, <laughs> it was it was something else. there whose real name was Vincent Eugene Craddock. Gene was one of the pioneers of both rockabilly and rock and roll. That track was his top 10 hit from 1956, Bebop and he performed it with his backing band, The Blue Caps. The song has been covered by numerous and varied artists, including the Everly Brothers, Jerry Lee Lewis, The Beatles, Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, David Cassidy, The Stray Cats and Queen. Stand by. Lots more to come. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. You're still here. Great, because drummer Tony Newman is just getting started with his fascinating story. Rewind back to 1963 when Tony and the band Sounds Incorporated met and befriended the Beatles and were quickly signed to Brian Epstein's management company. After releasing a couple of singles, including the song Spanish Harlem in 64, the band became Scylla Black's backing group. You're my world, you're every breath I take. You're my world, you're every move I make. The following year, in 1965, the group toured the world as the Beatles' opening act, including at the now infamous concert at New York City's Shea Stadium. We were with the Beatles. We were with Little Richard in Hamburg, and they were in there in the Star Club. They were doing four sets a night or something, along with the Searchers, all these Liverpool bands that we all became friends with. A lot of heavy drinking, a lot of sex. Yeah, we're in the red light district. <laughs> Kids, you know, giving us speed and have what you like. You know, the club, the club's drug of choice was preludin, prelis, because that meant that all the sets were fast. Everyone's playing quick, you know. George Harrison talks about it, prelis, you know. So the Beatles really liked us and we liked them. And of course, we worked with a couple of people they really, really liked, like Little Richard. No one ever dreamt in our era that they'd get to meet or play with Little Richard. Here he is.
I've signed us to back primarily uh, Silla Black. And we were a good opening act for the Beatles because we had saxophones and we weren't anything like them. So we opened Shea Stadium. It was incredibly noisy and the PA system was ridiculous. Everything was a slap back. So you had to guess where you were time-wise and, you know, just blank it all out and go through it. So were there screaming girls while you were playing too? Could you hear yourselves play? Could they hear you play? I don't know. I mean, we played and the screaming never stopped. And the bass player said to me on the way, he said, I don't know whether they're screaming because they liked us or they're screaming that we're off so they can see the Beatles. We did the uh, LA, Houston Africa Dome. And, uh, uh, when I was in Houston, I had like white jeans and a white T-shirt. So I went up on the parapet to look down on the stage. So with that, a chief of police comes with six of his deputies and surround me. And he said, what are you doing? I said, I'll work here. And I went to walk away. And they all pulled their guns out and pointed them at me. I mean, six deputies. And he realised, you know, I'm unarmed, for God's sake. I haven't got anything on, T-shirt, jeans. And he said, I'm sorry about that. But it was crazy to have six pistols pointed at you before the show, by the way. So, uh, What, you know, what did they was... thought you'd done wrong? Nothing. They're paranoid. Anybody out of place, they're going to get shot, you know. That's America. It's America. <laughs> yeah. It's just crazy, you know. I feel sorry for them, shot. though. They must have had an immensely difficult time controlling the crowd in those days for acts like the Beatles. Oh, they'd never seen anything like it. That's right. You know, never. Never had there been that. I mean, the Beatles were revolutionary. They were great. And I used to use Ringo's drums every night, and they'd put a Towns Incorporated badge on the front, you know, of his drums. And Ringo had a special case made up for him. I don't forget, we had these traps cases which held the snare drum and the, the, some of the symbols and the stands, some of it, and it had Ringo style the Beatles from Ludwig drums, you know. Yeah. And I thought that, that was the first time I'd ever seen a, somebody get endorsed by a big drum company, you know. It was a really great deal. She loves you, yeah. Must have been an incredibly special time for you with those guys. Well, it was. It was a bittersweet thing because although it exposed us, we didn't have any music to present to the public that, that was appropriate for the time. I mean, we were like robots on the end. You know, we just go on and play our set like robots. And I don't know why it was. Nobody thought, why don't we write some cool stuff or get someone to write cool stuff or get a singer and mellow it out somewhere. It was so frantic. It was ridiculous. So like, let's play as fast as we can, then you'll like us if we get off quickly, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the mad things that go on in your head, you know. So uh, anyway, yeah, we, we did those tours. And I left. I can't remember when I left. 65 or 66. And I, I left them to do sessions. My wife at the time was a big big session singer she she'd do three or four sessions a day and she'd work with all the Motown acts I rather like sounds did actually because we backed Little Richard and Sam Cooke and uh, Jerry Lee Lewis and Benny King and the Shirelles I mean 
we had a roster of acts that we worked with, and the American acts really liked us because we learned the material before they got got there. So they come in, we got it down for them. When the night has come and the land is dark and the moon is the only light we'll see. No, I won't be afraid. Oh, I won't be afraid. Just as long as you stand, stand by me. So, darling, darling, stand by me. Oh, stand by me. Oh, stand, stand by me. Stand by me If the sky That we look upon Should tumble and fall Or the mountain Should crumble To the sea I won't cry I won't cry No, I won't Shed a tear Just as long As you stand, stand by me Incredible time in music it was back oh, then. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Tony Newman, you then went on. Share the story around meeting and playing with Donovan. Well, I was with the Jeff Beck group. It's, now, I'll tell you this story, just set it up a bit. Great. I was a session man, and Cliff Richard had sort of got me on as his main drummer. I was the man that played the live shows. I'm the man who does his recording. And I was doing a gospel tour with him, of all things, you know, with a band, a group called a folk band called the Settlers, and uh, I'm playing brushes. I'm not playing drums. And uh, it was a good account. That you know, I was glad. I was always worked. And Jeff Beck called me one night, and he said, he said we need a drummer. He said I remember playing with you at Hammersmith Palace on the Beatles Christmas show. We, we, the Yardbirds were on, you know. So he said, uh, could you come down and play some tunes with us, you know. So again, I'm, I'm going to an uh, audition that I didn't know. I thought we were going to cut some. So Rod's there, uh, Jeff, and Nicky Hopkins is playing piano. And I don't know who the bass player was. No one actually knew who he was. <laughs> he was a ringing. <laughs> so they offered me the gig. I got the gig straight away. Come on, let's go to American tour. Let's make some records. So the bass player lasted one night in America, and that was it. And then Ronnie Wood came in and played bass. And Ronnie was great, a great bass player. So Ronnie and I went back to the band, went back to England, and uh, we did uh, Donovan. We did uh, Goo Goo Barabba Jangle and something else and a couple of other tracks with Donovan and it was Donovan with, with the Jeff Beck group. So they were good tracks. They really were good tracks. She came, she came to meet a man. She found an angel. Goo 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 Barabba was his name now. Goo 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 Barabba was his name now. Goo 
Then the liquid passing all into oil. Love is hot. Truth is mountain. What was he like to work with? I don't know. I mean, we just went top music. You just put the you just put the music down. Well, I mean, he was, he was singing. No, he was there, but we were too busy figuring out what to do with the arrangement to really talk to him. I mean, I don't know whether I talked to him or not because I was so involved in like making the rhythms interesting and getting sounds right. What we're going to do and make the feel sort of interesting and yeah. You did pretty well. The, uh, yes, awesome we did. Tracks. Yeah, yeah, they are. I like them too, which is <laughs> rare. And, and you know what's amazing about them? A lot of the music that you've been involved with holds up still pretty well today. Well, that's what I'm told. It really does. You know, Jeff, see, we all got fired from the Jeff Beck group. On a, we were, oh, that's right. We were in New York and the album was 18 in the US charts. Beckola. It was supposed to be Cosa Nostra Becola, but Peter Grant wouldn't let us do that uh, because of Costa Rola, the, the alliance with the Mafia, who were running the show anyway. So uh, we get to go, get up to go to like Woodstock or something, and Jeff's not around. Jeff's gone back to England to sort out his girlfriend who's screwing the gardener or something. So really, that was it. That was it. I worked with him for about a year. Then I told him that it was over. He called me and said, I'm getting a new band together with uh, Tim Beck, Bogart and a piece, you know. And that's what happened. So we got fired. And and, um, later on, I saw Jeff had remixed uh, Beckola, which I played on, and he noted he was really sorry about getting rid of that band. He said, I made a big mistake there. I mean, one minute you're part of a band that's really flying high and the next minute it's like, I'll see you later, don't need you anymore. Well, that's showbiz, you know. I mean, that's the worst part, you know. It hurts you, but you get used to it. There's so much disappointment in showbiz and so much crooked business with the artists. They do what they could do then. They could manipulate me any way they wanted to because I've got a record in the charts with the Jeff Beck group, we're moving up, we're gonna, it's going to be big, you know. And so, oh, don't pay me. If you need to pay me, that's all right. But, you know, so we're dumb, just dumb asses, you know. Yeah. And uh, I remember we did call a strike at, uh, in New York with Jeff Beck group and they had to pay us $5,000 a piece to play the Shaper Beer Festival. And the lawyers brought the checks down and paid us and uh, we got paid what we were due. Crazy, really. I was the instigator. It's us against the mafia. I mean, it's just ridiculous, you know. I hear music stories all the time. Like a very big act, I won't name him, went back on the road on a stadium tour and wanted to pay the brass section what he'd paid them in the early 70s. And not only that, if they cut... A, a, a CD that wouldn't get paid for it. I mean, come on, what are you doing, you know? Come what on, Tony, grief. just between me and you, name him. Well, that was Cliff Richard a few years ago. Wow. I couldn't believe it. Got myself a crying, talking, sleeping, walking, living down. Got to do my best to please her just cause she's a living down. Got a roving eye and that is why she satisfies my soul Got the one and only walking, talking 
get her hair. Somebody came and told me, I said, listen to this one. Oh, I was with the Everly Brothers and the guys, a couple of guys lived in London and they were part of the, I guess it was the early, late 90s, early 2000s, you know. It's just mind-blowing. Why don't you just pay the guys? He's a very decent fellow, isn't he? I hope you're enjoying Tony Newman's story. He'll be back with more in just a sec. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Welcome back. Tony Newman's been telling us about his time with the Jeff Beck Group. From there, it was on to work with David Bowie and an even deeper dive into the rock and roll way of life. Well, uh, there's a few groups in between that. Beck was like 70. Then I had my own band called May Blitz, which was a stoned-out band that we <laughs> became. That, it sort of became cultish. And I was working with The Who doing some tracks for the movie Tommy. So I get a call from Herbie Flowers, and he says to me, you've got to come over here. I'm working with David Bowie. We can't get this right. We've had several drummers come in, and it's not right. Will you come over? So we went over, and we start cutting, and David just loved it. We got on great, and then after a few days, he said to me, do you want to come on a tour with me? I said, that sounds great. You know, I'd love to. And what was it like with him? He was just blowing people's minds everywhere. (sighs) I know he was. You know, we went to New York, and we rehearsed, and it was a great vibe. And then somehow it got very theatrical. All of a sudden, the group singer, as it were, came David, the megastar. So it all changed. We were then, I don't want to say relegated, but we sort of asked for a backpack. We're we're at the back of the stage and all these massive theatrics are going on. And it was a really, really good band. sold out everywhere because uh, David you know when I got in the studio with him we're going to do a track called Sweet Thing so I said what do you want me to do David he said I want you to imagine that you're a French drummer watching your first guillotine yeah so that was <laughs> that was the that was the drums on Sweet Thing that's so bizarre oh isn't it it isn't so It turned out some people think it's his most passionate track ever. Cocaine use was absolutely insane on that tour. David was like, he looked like a death camp victim. He was so gone, you know, he had weighed nothing. So that was his gig. And, so constantly uh, wired. Well, I know I was maxed out. I don't know what the hell we were doing. We did a live gig. We did a two-day recording. I get on stage and I have no idea what to do. I'm like an autopilot. So I never wanted to listen to the album. I thought, I'm not listening to the way I played on there. That's terrible. And my son calls me from England. He says, you've got to listen to David Live. It's something else. So I listened to it, and it's really good. Ground control to major time. Ground 
ground control to Major Tom Take your protein pills and put your helmet on Ground control to Major Tom Commencing countdown Engines on Check ignition And may God's love be with you I managed to play for another 25 years without taking a drink of drugs. I didn't use at all. What was the turning point? Well, that was 1983, and I'm in Nashville, and I'm broke. And I've got the girl who, in London who had a baby, a stripper, brought her over to Nashville. Oh, I've been talking, I know, <laughs> tell me about it. One day, we were at the Hilton Hotel, and I've convinced the manager to provide us with all the alcohol we can drink. We've got no money, nothing. And so I've, I've conned him into doing this. I was going to the bathroom throwing up blood, and I'm going to the bar ordering another double brandy. When I came round, I said, well, I can't do this. I'm done. I don't know where the wife and kids are. I don't even have a kit of drums to play. I don't know what's happened. So take me to a treatment facility. So that's what I did. And I've had a drinker since then. Good for you. Where did all yeah, the money go? I don't know. When you're in treatment, they ask you to make a budget of how much you're spending a week on alcohol and drugs. So I said it had to be $12,000 a month. Wow. Where did the money come from? I don't know. How did I pay for it? I don't know. But all those years that you were playing, you've earned good money with all those bands. Yeah, but I spent it all. On so drugs and alcohol. Gonna, sex oh, drugs. All I the forgot drugs. the sex, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've got, oh, yeah, Mr <laughs> Clever Dick here. That's just, just outrageous. That's what I lived on. And I see the guys in the bands buying houses and nice cars, and I'm broke. So many of the guys I knew are dead or severely handicapped from being in the music business, you know, the diseases that come over you. And that's how it is. You can't do this. We're too old. Our bodies can't cope with what we did in those days. Nowhere near. Yeah, I mean, I'm bothered about doing a... An aspirin too many because that's the How ridiculous. I hear you. It's very lucky that you stopped when you did. Nobody can explain Keith Richards. Well, Keith, he's a picture of Dorian Gray. You know, he's the last of the great rockers. I went and saw Keith and Roddy when they were playing with the Stones. And the first thing Keith said to me was, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be dead years ago. And dear old Charlie said, he was so shocked to see me. Like, you're alive. You know, <laughs> what the hell are you doing here?
Newman, the reason I got onto you in the first place was because a listener wanted to hear all about your time with T-Rex. The band notched up only three big hits, but they really enjoyed a big cult status, didn't they? Of course, the band's greatest asset was that androgynous pin-up frontman, Mark Bolan. He's influenced so many since he died in a car crash in 1977 at the age of 29. Can you tell us a little bit about your time with them? Yeah, sure. Well, it was another one of those times when I was in London and I'd lost my drums. The management company had taken my drums and I sat in this flat, not playing, no drums, for about three or four months. And all one day I woke up and I said, this is nuts. So I called my friend Herbie. I said, what you got going on? The next thing I know, he called me. He said, I'm working with Mark Bowden. He needs a drummer desperately. So I went over there. And Mark came up to me, he said, it's been a while for both of us, hasn't it? I said, you ain't kidding. So he'd been out on a run or two, I think, for a while. So I started working with Mark, and we immediately hit it off. We were both alcoholic drug addicts, but trying to keep it under wraps. He's just a lovely guy, you know, I just loved him. And he'd give me his clothes. Glam rock, but it was good music, he was a good guy. and beautiful to be a part of. You know, he couldn't sing, but he could. He's like, bah, you know. Uh, but <laughs> You obviously had a lot in common with Mark Boland. His heyday was really 70 to 73. That's At that right. time, he was compared to the Beatles with something like 11 top 10 singles in the charts. I know. We sold out everywhere. Everywhere was packed. He did really good business and it was a good band to work with. It really was. And Herbie thought it was the best band he'd ever been with, ever. He thought it was absolutely fantastic. Were you into it? Yeah. I think I just like Mark and his charisma and his delusional ego, which was just I just loved and laughed. You know, he'd gotten a bad reputation. When I joined the T-Rex company, they badmouthed him a lot about what he wanted and how much damage he'd done. And I thought, that doesn't apply to me. You had that experience. I haven't had that experience. And of course, the girls all loved him because he was so good looking. Oh, absolutely. He wasn't with any strippers. He could hang out with all the groupies. Yeah, well, that's right. They're there for after hours entertainment. They'll be who you want them to be. Some of them are really good looking and they just like being with people who like to rock and roll and let it all hang out. We've all been there. You know, this one thing you do when you're rocking around the world. 
So if you had it all again, it doesn't sound like you would change a thing. You've got to remember with all this, there's a tremendous amount of peripheral damage. But when it's so selfish and so self-centred, and nothing matters more than the drums of Tony Newman, it's not a good thing. It's on the B side of life, really. Because you see, the one thing you will run out of is, is a celebrity. But the, to seek a spiritual life, you won't run out of a spiritual life. Tony Newman, a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for sharing time with us. All right, thank you, Janet. I'm humbled by this whole situation, I really am. There's definitely a book in Tony Newman, isn't there? But we might have to wait a while for it because Tony says he writes about a paragraph every three years. Thanks so much for joining me here today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to get in touch with me, please do so through the website, abreathoffreshair.com.au. I'll be looking forward to being back in your company again, same time next week. Take care of yourself, won't you, until we meet again. See ya. Because it's a beautiful day mm-hmm. You've been listening to A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. Beautiful day. You're gone away It's a beautiful day